Good morning. My name is Nathan Williams. I'm the pastor of Community Ministries. And you know what? It's good to be back with you guys in Danville here again this morning. So, since the last time I was here with you, I made a trip with my wife back to Ireland. And you know what? Every time I go there, we spend a little bit of time with my sister-in-law, my wife's sister, in a little seaside town. Uh, just a beautiful little town. And from the second we get there, I'm always just itching with anticipation. You see, from their backyard, you can look out and you can see the sea. And from the sea, you can see this big mountain rising up out of the sea, often with its summit in the clouds. And now you know why I'm itching with anticipation. I'm just dying to talk someone, be it my wife or someone, into climbing that mountain with me. So... It's the tallest mountain in Northern Ireland, Sleeve Donard. I mean, who wouldn't want to climb this mountain and see the view from up there, right? It takes about 15 minutes to walk from the house down to the sea, and from there you kind of take this path that kind of leads around to the, to the side, kind of away from the sea, so you can't really see the, the sea, and you're climbing up kind of from the backside of the mountain, and, and you start off through, you're, you're coming on this path, and it's going through these, these woods, and these huge big oak trees, and sycamore trees, and beech trees and they're huge and massive and, and through these along the path there's this this stream this this that's just cascading down over the rocks and flowing down and, and 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 splashing and then plunging into pools and it's just so beautiful so as you're climbing through this you don't even notice you're climbing hardly because it's just so beautiful and it's, it's just so tranquil it's, it's awesome and then before you know it the the deciduous trees have changed into evergreens and but it's still beautiful and then all of a sudden boom the trees stop you're above the tree line and open up in front of you this huge big valley about a mile long slowly ascending and you walk through that knowing that that's my goal way up there but you can really can't really see everything on your way and finally you get to the end of the valley and you start up this rocky slope kind of a path and about halfway up you notice this spring gushing out of the rocks where the stream actually starts and you get your water bottle, which is empty by now, and you fill it up and you, you drink it down. It's so just crystal clear and just cold, ice cold. It's so beautiful. And then you start on the rest of the way up the mountain. And all this time, you really don't know what it's going to be like when you get there. But as you see the top, you're thankful that the clouds have dissipated and you know the view is going to be absolutely beautiful. And then as you poke your head up over the top, the wind that has been building down at the ocean comes and it just blows you away. <laughs> yeah, I'm... I'm probably going to get in trouble when I did any of you kids when when you were kids or when you had kids remember them little plastic things uh, they call them the trolls and their hair went straight <laughs> Yeah I I'm I'm really going to be in trouble right now okay never mind This is probably the worst picture I could have picked of my wife but it, it's on top of Sleeve Donard right And here's the best part though It's only now at the very top that you finally get to see the impact, the full impact of what it means to have reached the summit. Because as you look around, you look out over the top and you see the sea before you and the tiny little ships that are way down there. You look from where you have climbed and there's the town there, there that we, where you had been only hours before and the huge hotel now just looks like so little small. 
And then as you look around behind you, you see below you all the other mountain peaks and valleys and streams and rivers and lakes as far as the eye can see. And you're like, oh my goodness. This just takes your breath away. You knew as you were climbing through the forest and the valley and up the, rock, up the rocky slope that this was going to be great. You never just had no, you had no idea of how great it was really going to be. So what you might ask has all this to do with the message today? Well, this week and next, we will be looking at the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Suffering and death today, resurrection next week. But with all this, it's really the pinnacle of the big story of the Bible. Everything we have been looking at so far as we've walked through the Bible, through the Bible this year, has led to this moment in history where Jesus, the Son of God, would suffer and die and then raise again from the dead. Since the fall of man in chapter 3, creation has yearned for it. Mankind has needed it. And the prophets foretold it. But even though the prophets wrote about it, I don't think any of them could truly grasp the enormity of the sacrifice that Jesus would make and the tremendous implications that that would have for all mankind. You see, although they knew this was going to be a pivotal moment in time, in history, they were still climbing through the forest and the valley and up the rocky slopes. We, on the other hand, can look at this from the summit and we can see the glory of God's perfect plan through Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. So if you haven't already done so, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14, and we'll be starting about halfway through that chapter, and you can find that on page 667 in your auditorium Bibles. And you will remember that God created, right in the beginning, God created a perfect paradise here on earth, the Garden of Eden, and the world was just perfect. And into that garden, he placed the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. But we see by chapter three that their true colors really came out and were displayed by their disobedience in eating the forbidden fruit. Thus, sin enters into the world and with its sickness and pain and death and destruction. All the result of our sin and rebellion to the one who actually created us. And it's here that we see for the first time God says there's got to be a way out. I'm going to provide a way out. And he promises that he would send someone to crush the head of the serpent who was the embodiment of Satan in the temptation. And who was that going to be? It was going to be Jesus. He was going to be the crusher, but not without consequences. You see, the serpent was going to strike the heel of the one who would crush him, ultimately leading to his death. So Jesus' sacrificial death is foreshadowed over and over again in the Old Testament, leading towards this, through the Old Testament sacrificial system, where the sinner would come and he would place 
his hand on the head of the sacrificial lamb. There he would confess his sins, symbolically transferring his sin over to the lamb. Then as he watched, the priest would slit the throat of the lamb and spill its blood, giving that indication, giving that visual picture that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And you watched, thinking, that should have been me. I'm the one who deserves to die. But it is necessary for shedding blood for the forgiveness of sins. All a picture of this pivotal moment that we're going to be looking at. We see pictures of this all through the Old Testament. Just to name a couple to remember, when Isaac was going to be offered on the altar, what did God provide? He provided a lamb to take his place. Or what about when the angel of death was passing through Egypt? And remember, he was going to kill the firstborn in every household. And Moses says, kill a lamb. If you put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and on the lentil of your house, that angel will pass over and take the place of death in your, in your house. No one in your house will die. Over and over we see this picture until the New Testament along comes John the Baptist who joins all the dots for us. One day he sees Jesus coming and he says, there he is, that's him, that's the lamb, that's the one that all these have been looking for. That's the one we've been waiting for, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the ultimate sacrificial lamb. So let's go ahead and jump to our passage for today. Jesus is already anticipating the ordeal that he is going to go through. And he, he told his disciples about it over and over. He, he says, he told them, I'm going to suffer and die, to which they would reply, no, 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 you're not. They didn't understand. But he knew, he knew that's why he was born. That's why he had come to earth. And as the days come closer to the time where he's going to be crucified, He's anticipating that. In the beginning of the chapter we're actually looking at today, chapter 14, it starts out actually with a woman who anoints Jesus with an expensive ointment. And, and those around him are saying, saying, hey, you know, this is kind of a waste of money. Well, why is she doing this? You know, this, this ointment could have been sold and given to the poor. It's like a year's worth of wages. And Jesus, hey, guys, stop criticizing her. She has done a beautiful thing. She is anointing my body for burial. Jesus is already anticipating, thinking about what is going to happen. He's getting ready for this momentous occasion. And Jesus, then later on, he has supper with his disciples and he gives them bread and wine and he says, this represents my body which is broken for you and my cup, and, and this cup represents my blood which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me, of my torture and my death. It's what he was born to do. And here we find him in the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before his arrest, trial, torture, and execution. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32. Follow along with me as I read. Verse 32. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John 
and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said, To Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away, Jesus went away and prayed, saying the same words. What was he praying over again? Father, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will but yours. Now, when we talk about the events surrounding Jesus' suffering and death, we could be here for literally hours, weeks, talking about this. So what I want to do today is focus primarily in on what is going on here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in doing so, I want us to look at three cups. The first is which is cup number one, the cup of our sin. Now before you go there, this is not the cup that Jesus is talking about in this passage. That's cup number two, which we'll uh, be looking at in a few minutes. In fact, the Bible doesn't even talk about a cup of our sins. But if you bear with me, I think it might be helpful and a good visual for you uh, to, to, to visualize a cup of our sins. And to the extent that Jesus went in taking our sins upon himself. Verse 33 says that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And in verse 34, he tells his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Now I've got a question for you. What is it that brings distress and trouble into your life? What makes you anxious? Is it not sin? If we were sinless and relied 100% on God, we'd have nothing to be anxious about, would we? Even the things that are out of our control, other people sinning? Or what about sickness and death that bring on anxiety? Are not they the results of the curse of sin upon mankind? Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6 that we are not to be anxious about anything if we put God number one. Seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things will be added unto you. And and Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4 to be anxious for nothing. And yet we see Jesus, the innocent son of God, brought to his knees by something that he was about to face. Can I suggest that Jesus was beginning to feel the burden of our sins, of our anxieties that was laid upon him? 1 Peter 5, 7 says that we are to cast all our anxieties on Jesus. Why? 
because he cares for us. He lived so that we, he could, he could bear our burden, take our cares. And it's those cares, those anxieties that I'm sure Jesus was feeling at this time. Jesus taking our sin upon himself. What exactly does that look like? Let me give you an illustration that might help you understand. A, a few years ago, some years ago, when I worked in the construction industries, industry, uh, um, I learned that a, a friend of mine had a very weak stomach. And of course, my devious mind starts working, and I'm thinking, okay, this could be great for a practical joke. So I talked a couple of my friends into coming along with me and to, to pulling this off. So that one, of, one of whom liked to chew tobacco and spit it in a Coke bottle. And there was always about two inches of blackish brown nasty stuff in this Coke bottle on his workbench. So anyway, I got a nice, fresh, clean bottle of Coca-Cola. I emptied it out, left about two inches in it. Got an oatmeal cookie, crumbled it up and put it in there. Switched it around to make a nice blackish brown substance, right? I replaced that bottle with this bottle. Then, as the victim came in for lunch, predictably, I nonchalantly walked by and I picked up the bottle of Coke and cookies. Says, man, that looks nasty. How do you do that? And I set it back down. Of course, my other friend chimed in and says, I'll give you $20 if you drink it. And I'm like, you got to be joking. 20 bucks? No way. He says, how about a $50 bill? And he slapped it on the table. I'm like, you serious? Shook it around and chugged it down. Pulled out a trash can, pretended like it was heaving, only to have the desired effect. And my friend with a weak stomach headed for the door as fast as he could, heaving the whole way. I told you I have a devious mind. I'm not as nice as I appear sometimes. Okay, I tell you this story to help you understand just how disturbing it would have been for the Son of God to drink the vile cup of the sin of the world. Imagine a cup filled to the brim with the sin of a pedophile, of an adulterer, of murderer, of incest, of thievery, of rape, of lying and deceit, just to mention a few. And then to think of Jesus taking that cup of sin and tipping it back and emptying it into himself, draining it to the dregs, worse far, by far, than what it would be like to drink a glass of chew spit, a glass of vomit, or anything else vile thing that you could ever imagine. Galatians chapter 3, 13 says it like this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming that curse for us. You see, we were the ones who bore the curse of sin, but Jesus told, chose to take that from us by becoming that curse for us. He chose to take our sin in his own body and bear it in our place. Here's what the apostle Peter says about it. He says, he, bore, he himself, meaning Jesus, bore our sins in his body, on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, by what he suffered, we are healed. 
Let me ask you, have you ever laid awake at night and you toss and you turn and you rehash the events of the day because you know that you've sinned against an almighty God? You've lost your temper, you have said unkind things. Perhaps you have cheated, you have stole, you have slandered, and in your mind you try to justify what you have done, but deep down inside you've got that sickening feeling in your stomach that just can't let you sleep. And you know, deep down, that you have brought dishonor to our Lord. Now, imagine Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to take, preparing to take all that guilt that is keeping you awake at night, that is making you stick at your, sick at your stomach, that and so much more. Martin Luther said it like this. He said, all the prophets did foresee in spirit that Christ should become the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, blasphemer, blasphemer, etc., that ever was or could be in all the world. For he, being made a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, is now not an innocent person and without sin, but a sinner. Wow. The innocent son of God becomes a sinner? Because he sinned? No, he was innocent. Because he took our sin. That's what made him the sinner. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he, Jesus, or he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, Jesus knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Luther goes on to say that Jesus became Peter the denier, Paul the persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor, David the adulterer, that sinner that did eat the apple in paradise, that thief which hanged upon the cross, and briefly became the person which committed the sins of all men. That's the burden he was carrying. When we think of Jesus ingesting, so to speak, the dregs of our sin into his own body, it should make us sick to our stomach. Violently sick. That's what he did for us. So what is the second cup? Let's look back at our text. Jesus is praying to God the Father and says, verse 36, he says, Abba, Father, that term Abba is not like saying, oh, my father who I don't, didn't really know, he left when I was three or whatever. No, 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 this is an intimate term of, of father, the one who I have the close relationship, the one who loves me so much and the one who I love so much, the one I have total communion with, the, ter- the total trust, so much love. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. What is that cup that Jesus is asking his heavenly father to remove from him? It is the cup of God's wrath. Cup number two is the cup of God's wrath. 
that is about to be poured out upon Jesus. Let's talk for a minute about crime and punishment here for a second. Justice demands that punishment must be meted out to pay for a crime. What justice would there be if someone came along while you and your family are watching TV in your living room at night and they threw a Molotov cocktail through your living room window, your house starts on fire, you and your children run out the door only to have him standing out there with a gun and shoots your children and laughs at you in the face. He then goes to court and the judge says, oh, I know you admitted to doing this and I know there's plenty of witnesses said you, you, you did it, but you know what, I, I, you're probably just having a bad day. Um, you know what, I'm sorry you had to have the trouble of coming in here and, and, and hearing all these accusations today. You know what, I, I'm, I'm just gonna let you off. And uh, you, you know, in, in, in fact, I feel bad for you. Here, here, here's, here's $20, go buy yourself some lunch and, and uh, have a good day. You'd say no, absolutely not. This man is a wicked criminal. He needs to pay for his crime. The judge needs to throw the book at him. The, the wrath of the judge of, needs to be foisted upon him because of what he has done. Now the truth is that you and me are all perpetrators. We are all guilty of the crime of sinning. And that sin deserves to be punished. And what is that punishment? Romans chapter 6 verse 23 tells us that, you know what? We deserve death. That's the punishment for our sins. And we're not just talking about physical death that we're all going to experience someday if Jesus doesn't come back first. We're talking about what the Bible calls the, the second death. A punishment so great that it's worse than death itself where we live on for eternity in a, in. in in torture and in suffering, regret and pain. We deserve for the wrath of God to be poured out upon us. Now if our sin, on the other hand, however, is put on Jesus, that means that the sin has been taken off us and put on Jesus. No longer we the guilty ones, but Jesus is the guilty one. And not because of his sin, no. He was innocent, innocent, but because of our sin on him. So as Jesus prays in the garden, he is anticipating the wrath of God being poured out upon him. Because of the guilt which he carries, God, the, the, the just judge, must punish that. And it's almost more than Jesus can bear. His suffering in the garden is so immense and he's feeling the strain of it. Dr. Luke, medical Dr. Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke, describes it like that, that Jesus prayed in the garden like this. He says, and being in agony, he, meaning Jesus, prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, medical people will know this situation is hematidrosis which is a rare condition where extreme anguish and physical pain can cause one's blood capillaries to dilate and burst, mixing sweat with, and blood. This, my friends, is the anguish that Jesus is experiencing. You know, I, I, I often ask people, pretty regular actually, why did Jesus come to earth? 
And quite often I get the same answer. Well, everyone's heard it. Well, he came to die for our sins, right? Well, actually, they're right. He did. He came to die for our, our friends. But I, I, I think this misses the whole gravity of, 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 of the whole thing. Imagine if Jesus came to earth and he died and, and, and he, he lived and then he says, well, it's time for my death. Uh, um, I'm going to lay down a table. Why don't you give me a, a, an injection uh, where I can just kind of drift off to sleep and then die peacefully. Would that have been the same? No, in doing so, he would not have experienced the full cup of God's wrath poured out upon him. Jesus endured the punishment that was appropriate for the worst of the worst criminal. When Jesus was mocked, he was mocked in our place. When he was spat on, it was what we deserved. When the prophet talks about him being beaten when whipped till his, till his flesh was torn, it was in our place so that we could have peace with God, so that we could be healed. Isaiah goes on to say that he was pierced. We know that happened with nails through his hands and his feet, through a spear through his side, through thorns piercing his brow as they shoved the crown of thorns upon his head and the blood flowed down his face. Why was he pierced? We're told he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We are told that he bore our shame. How was Jesus shamed? As they stripped his clothes and nailed him naked to the cross. We like to see these pictures of Jesus hanging up there somewhat peacefully. Yeah, there's some blood, but he's got a loincloth. No, no. It was in agony as they stripped him naked to, to, to shame him in front of the world, the whole world. And he did that. Why? In our place. And that right there, my friends, is the gospel. Jesus in our place. Jesus in our place. Was enduring this pain and suffering the worst part for Jesus? I don't think so. The worst part was in knowing that he was not ultimately suffering at the hands of men, but of God himself. Did men actually nail him to the cross? Yes, but it was really God. How do we know this? Isaiah 53 verse 4, Surely he, meaning Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by who? God and afflicted. Who smote Jesus really? Who afflicted Jesus? God. You see that? What happened to Jesus happened at the hands of God. The cup of God's wrath poured out upon his son because of our sin. If that wasn't enough, I believe the hardest thing for Jesus might have been the feeling of abandonment as God had to turn his back on his own beloved son as he carried the weight of our sin on the cross. 
And Jesus felt that to his inner core as he hung there. And that's why he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That feeling, that intimacy that he had with his father, all of a sudden he felt no more as God turned his back on his own son because of the immense sin that he was carrying on him. Now before we look at the third and final cup, I want to show you one more thing about the cup of God's wrath, and that is that while Jesus longed to have it taken away, even agonized over it, he was still willing to have it poured out upon himself, even when he prayed to have it removed. His desire was to remain in the will of God, and that superseded his personal feelings of anguish, any feelings that he was experienced, and that was why he prayed. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. This is where faith comes in, my friends. Faith in believing that God knows best if we but leave it in his hands. So often we want to tell God what we want. We ask him to fix things that we believe are broken without ever asking him if perhaps the broken thing is part of his will. A great example of Jesus, even though what he desired, he was willing to lay aside for the will of God. You know what? God often uses the broken things for his glory. And that should give us hope as we know that we can have joy even in our brokenness. Maybe more so in our brokenness if we leave it to the will of God than in our strength. Why? Because it is then that we rely on him rather than ourselves. And it is only then when we start relying on him that we can start to see him working in our lives and through us in other people. Jesus knew this. That is why he knew there was no other way. And he must go through it and willingly take it. He knew that if there was to be any reconciliation between God and mankind, he must die. He must suffer. Tell you what, there's no joy in suffering. Only pain and sorrow. Isaiah describes him as a man of sorrows. But his faith was in the will of his father. And the result of going through this dark valley, this valley of death, was so that he could come through the other side, and we'll talk about that next week, victorious over sin. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame. My friends, there was no joy in the enduring but he was willing to go through it because he knew of the joy that it would bring later on when he came to the other side because of the redemption we would have for our sins because of his shed blood for you and you and you and me, anyone who had placed their faith in him because of what he did on the cross for us, which leads us to the third and last cup, which is the cup of redemption. So let's start out by talking about what redemption really means. Redemption is the act of regaining possession of something in exchange for payment. In other words, something that really should belong to me, 
I buy it anyway, and I pay for it to reclaim it back. Last week, Pastor Chris talked about our inability to have two masters. In essence, we are a slave to sin and Satan and are on the broad road that leads to destruction, or we belong to Jesus Christ and are on the narrow path that leads to everlasting life and eternal glory. The sad truth is that although God created us, we all start off as slaves to Satan and on that broad road that leads to destruction. Why? Because we are born with a sin nature inherited from our fathers. And as such, our sin, of which we are all guilty, has separated us from God. I imagine it like this. Satan says, they're mine, these souls belong to me and I won't let go. But Jesus says, I'm willing to pay the ransom price. To which Satan replies, all the silver and gold in the world would not be enough to buy their freedom. The penalty for their sin is death. They are mine. And Jesus replies, you're right. The only satisfactory ransom is blood. My blood. And I give it willingly. And with that, Jesus went to the cross as a sacrificial lamb so that his blood could be shed to pay the ransom price and with it purchase our freedom from Satan. That, my friends, is what is in the cup of redemption. Jesus' very own blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says it like this. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your father. That's, that's the sinful ways that we by nature have. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. But with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This cup of redemption is one that we should never forget. In fact, as Jesus prepared to go to the cross and was having supper with his disciples, he initiated the ordinance which we refer to as Holy Communion. And during that supper, he handed them the cup of wine. And he says, this represents my blood, which is shed for you. This is the new covenant. Lest you ever forget what I did for you with my blood, drink this whenever you do it in remembrance of me. Do not forget this cup of redemption, my blood. Jesus' final words on the cross were these. It is finished. What he meant by this was that he had completed the task he had come to earth to do. His blood had been shed and the ransom had been paid. Period. End of story. So what does this have to do with us? If Jesus paid the price, if Jesus took my place, then I guess there's nothing left for me to do. Yes and no. Yes to the fact that only Jesus' blood is sufficient to pay the ransom so that your sins can be blotted out. There is absolutely nothing you can do personally to appease the wrath of God. Only Jesus can do that. You can work all you like and God is still going to pour his wrath upon you unless, unless 
Jesus. So what's left for me to do? The Bible tells us that this ransom is a gift to us from God. And like any gift, it is there to be accepted or rejected. The gift is not yours unless you reach out your hand, receive it, and say, thank you. I want that gift. I accept your gift of ransom for me. Perhaps you're here today and you've never before really understood the full impact of why Jesus came to earth. That without his shed blood to redeem you, you are destined for an eternity of punishment in the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Do I like to talk about this? No, it's disturbing. But it's what the Bible says and it's the truth and to shy away from it would be not doing God's word justice. It's a fact. God demands punishment. Today can be the day when that changes, where you don't have to endure that punishment. Today can be the day when you fall on your knees and confess to Almighty God that you are a sinner, deserving of his wrath. But here's the best part. You can reach out your hand and put it on the lamb, so to speak. Put it on Jesus' head and say, Jesus, I I confess my sins. Take my sins. I place them on you because you said, lay them upon me. I will take them. And with that, Jesus takes them to the cross. Give him your sins. Say, I don't want to carry them anymore. I give them to you. I know you've already paid for them. I accept the free gift that you offer, the gift of eternal life because you have paid the ransom for me to Satan with your precious blood. If this is something you decide to do today or something you claim you have done in the past, It is a turning point in your eternity. Something not to be taken lightly, but something that should radically change everything about you, about who you are, about what you do, about the way you think, and about the way you live. It is at this point in time, the Bible says that we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. It should change the way we live from day to day. Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2 says it like this. Therefore, since since we have accepted Jesus' ransom, since we are surrounded so greatly by a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross, despising the shame so that he could walk through that valley and end up on the other side. And where is he now? And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Because of what he has done and because of where he is now, we need to live like we are following him. What the author of Hebrews is really saying here is that if we are now genuine followers of Jesus Christ, the full impact of his sacrificial death for us should make us want to forget about all the things that have been holding us back, the sins that so easily entangle us and keep us there and say, look, I put them aside. Jesus paid for them. I don't have to carry them anymore. I want to follow him because of what he has done for me. 
one day, if we decide to do that, one day it's going to be so awesome. As we meet our Savior, and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have run the race. You have finished the course. You have chased after me. You have borne fruit. You have told others about me. You have served me well. Enter into the joy that I have prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And oh, the joy that it will be one day to hear those words spoken to us right from the mouth of the one who took our burdens, who bore our shame, and who paid our ransom with our very, his very own blood. Now let me encourage you with this. Put your faith in Jesus today. Not out of, as a get out of hell for free card, but because of the fact that you are blown away by the immense love that he had for you when he went to the cross on your behalf. Now I know there are some of you here today who will admit to saying a prayer because you didn't want to go to hell and then went on your merry way without seeing any difference in your life. Let me suggest that today you place your faith in Jesus and what he has done because you are blown away by the immensity of his love for you. I'll tell you what, a prayer doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Place your faith in him. Ask him to make that change in your life that is evidence that you're ready to walk away from the sin that has held you captive. Say, it's all about Jesus. My focus is on you. When you place your focus on him because of what he has done, it changes how you live. If you don't see that change in your life, you need to ask Jesus today, what's with this? Am I really a follower of yours? Will you pray with me?